Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Everything's 5x4, a random podcast on Shuffle. I'm your host, Steve, and I can't believe I've actually stuck with this for 11 episodes. Uh, So if you're listening, thank you for listening. Anyway, uh, so what is this podcast for the one or two people who stumble across it, who haven't heard any of the previous episodes? Basically, I discussed five randomly selected topics from a list of 10 for four minutes apiece. I've been doing it pretty much weekly, and the topics are selected by the random number generator at random.org. So, you know, I, I find out what the topics are at the same time you do. Well, not really, because obviously it's not recorded live streaming, but you know what I mean. I basically, uh, when I'm recording, I find out what the topics are. Uh, The episode title this week for episode 11 is That Just Raises Fervor Questions. For those of you who are Futurama fans, you might recognize that from when Hermes discovers that Bender's cigar has burned down Zoidberg's underwater home. And uh, also a phrase that I often use, that just raises fervor questions because it is pretty relevant to life sometimes. Okay, so let's see what the random number generator has for us this week. Okay, here we go. So the first topic is number six, which is other miscellaneous pop culture. So basically, usually things that have to do with the internet. All right, next topic is number one, baseball. And let's see what we have for the third topic. It is number nine, soccer. Random number generator really wants me to talk about sports, I guess. And the fourth topic is number four, movies. And last but not least, we have number five, which is music. All right, so we've got baseball, soccer, or other miscellaneous pop culture, baseball, soccer, movies, and music this week. So, as I always say, enjoy or don't. Okay, so the first topic is other miscellaneous pop culture. And what I'm going to talk about is a few things that, as an older millennial, were part of my generation being extremely online, which the younger generation obviously gets criticized for, but I think we were as well. It was just different. And this is kind of inspired by the recent death of Yahoo Answers. So buckle up for some nostalgia if you, like me, came of age in your teens and early 20s in the late 90s and early 2000s. Okay, so as I mentioned, this segment is inspired by the death of Yahoo Answers, which was announced earlier in April. For those of you not as familiar with Yahoo Answers, it is basically crowdsourcing to answer people's questions. And as you can imagine, this has often gone badly. I think most the most famous one, which was turned into a meme, and well, not really a meme, sort of predating memes a bit, but a video. That was, I believe, made by Newsgrounds. I should probably look that up, to be honest with you. Um, I'm a librarian. But 
basically there was a video for a Yahoo question that was asked, how is Babby formed? How girl get pregnant? And I'm basically saying this phonetically as it was spelled. And the answer was, they need to do way to instain mother who kill their babbies because these babbies can't fricked back. And it went on and on. And it was just completely absurd, the whole thing, and just sort of embodied Yahoo Answers and sort of what the internet was, I guess, in the sense that it was just more absurd than upsetting at some point. I'm not going to say that there always haven't been negative spaces on the internet and awful things because really a lot of people when they get older start doing that, talking about the good old days. And the truth is the good old days never really existed in any form. But, you know, I think there was something different about the way my generation was extremely online, but also the same, because I think in in high school and early college, I was on AOL Instant Messenger all the time, as were a lot of people. And I believe AOL Instant Messenger aim went down in 2017 or 2018 and we all kind of mourned its death because you would just be talking to people on there in ways you couldn't communicate with them necessarily in real life and again not in a negative sense but you were maybe too nervous in person or socially anxious and i think again the the current generation catches a lot of slack for you know just going through different online mediums to communicate but I think it's kind of hypocritical for people, say, under their early 40s to talk about that because, hey, we were doing it too, just in a different way. I also recently was going through some old email, deleting emails, and I found a lot of notifications from MySpace. So MySpace, I decided just for the heck of it to log in. Basically, MySpace a few years ago deleted all the old messages and posts and all that. So it's both barren when you go there and also kind of a time capsule because you still see your top eight. You still see um, people's profiles, which haven't been accessed in years. So that is kind of interesting. Also, LiveJournal continues to live. And I used to do a lot on LiveJournal. I feel like Facebook and over social media sort of replaced it for me. I'm not going to tell you where to find me on LiveJournal, but every now and then I peek in there and see that my LiveJournal still exists. And it's an interesting time capsule, I think, from about 2002 to 2006 or so of just my life in my late teens and early 20s. And a lot of it is super cringeworthy, but, you know, still nice to look back on. And yeah. That is being extremely online for different generations. So for baseball today, I'm going to do something a little different. I could continue ranting about what a terrible rules change the runner on second to start the 10th inning is, or talk more about the trials and tribulations of the White Sox. But instead, I'm going to go ahead and talk about the international aspects of the game and my issues with the Olympic qualifying process. So after not being an Olympic sport for the last two Olympics, baseball is back as a summer Olympic sport at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which are actually held in 2021 because COVID. 
Anyway, the Olympic qualifiers for the Americas region, North America and Central America, are going to be held the last week of May through the first week of June, actually in Florida. They're going to be in West Palm Beach at Port St. Lucie, so I'm hoping I will actually be able to go see a game because I am actually double vaxxed and will be fully through the vaccination process in a few days. So anyway, here's here's the issue. So basically in these qualifiers, you've got the United States, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Colombia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Canada. Um, and Puerto Rico qualifies separately for Olympic purposes also for FIFA and soccer. It's kind of weird, but it is what it is. And that's a whole uh, thing to get into. Anyway, so looking at, thanks to ESPN, I was able to see the numbers on MLB opening day rosters. There's nine. There were 906 players on opening day rosters. And it's interesting to look at the demographics by nation of birth. So 68% were born in the United States. 11% in the Dominican Republic, and 7% in Venezuela. So between those three countries alone, you have 90% of major league players. If you throw in Cuba and Puerto Rico, that's 94%. Here's the issue. With these qualifiers, only one country is going to make it out of the qualifiers, and a second will go to a final stage where they can qualify against teams from other continents. So at maximum, you're going to see two teams from all these countries. So of the U.S., Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and Cuba, the real heavy hitters, and Canada, I would say, you're going to have two countries at the Olympics. And that's just kind of an issue. You're going you're gonna to miss one of the best baseball countries, a couple of the best baseball countries in the world. And that isn't an affront on Japan or South Korea, which have very good leagues. I've discussed the KBO on here. I haven't had the opportunity to watch the MPB, the Japanese league, but they're both quality leagues and players from Japan and South Korea have showed they can ball when they've come to the U.S. I don't know if saying can ball really applies with baseball, but I'm going to say it. Anyway, here's the other issue. So basically this is happening during baseball season. And there's not any sport where club over country is more important than in baseball. Even in soccer and basketball, it's true, but not nearly to the same extent because you're dealing with the offseason in those sports usually. So here's the thing. It's going to be a lot of American AA, AAA players, prospects. And some teams might not even want to use those prospects. In 2000, when the U.S. won gold, Famously, CeCe Sabathia was cut because Cleveland did not like the way he was being used. That team still had a great pitching staff of Roy Oswald and Ben Sheets and Ryan Franklin and went on to win gold, but I think that's the rarity. So it's prospects playing against professional players from other countries, which is just kind of rough, but that's if the U.S. even qualifies. And in this qualifying stage, it's going to be very difficult and unfortunately shut out some of the best uh, baseball-playing countries in the world. And I think in the future, that should change. So in terms of soccer right now, there's dozens, probably dozens, maybe hundreds of podcasts you can listen to related to the Super League and why it's a bad idea and how good it is that it has failed. 
But I think, and I agree with those, but I think I also can talk about the alternatives to that and how there's a bigger picture here. And there are things that, again, are providing an alternative to what the Super League stands for. All right. So I speak for not only myself, but I can speak for a lot of soccer fans and club executives and league executives when I say that I hated the concept of the Super League. I'm glad it is done and dusted, as the saying goes. And there's a lot of podcasts, a lot of TV pundits, a lot of articles, people on Twitter who can give you lots of reasons for that that I tend to agree with. But I think there's also not a lot of talk about what the antithesis of the Super League is, what the alternative is that's happening. And I'm happy to say that I support several clubs that I believe are doing that. So I can even talk about Villarreal, who are not by any means a small club or a poor club, but nowhere in the range of these large clubs, and will be playing Arsenal in the Europa League semifinal. And I could talk about FC St. Pauli, who follow the German 50 plus one model, where essentially members who are fans who buy a membership share have veto power over wealthy executives and even teams like Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, just completely massive teams even have that structure. So I think those are, those are alternatives. But what I really want to talk about here is AFC Wimbledon. And I've talked about AFC Wimbledon on end. There's just a lot of great articles and resources on there about their history as a Phoenix club formed by fans in protest of their club being moved 50 miles away. And, uh, you know, I think there was nothing more fitting than AFC Wimbledon getting our fourth league win in a row for the first time in five years on the day that the Super League died. So, you know, in, in 2016, the last time that happened, AFC Wimbledon won the promotion playoff to League One at the end of that season. That's not going to happen this year. But it has moved us five points above the relegation zone with a match in hand. So it's looking pretty good for survival in League One. So I think one of the, I want to give a shout out to A.U. Basal, who is 19. He scored an equalizing goal in his debut, but over this four match win streak, he has actually scored three goals. He's only 19. He's come through the AFC Wimbledon youth system since the under-12 level. So you're talking about, and there's a lot of players like this on Wimbledon, uh, Will Nightingale, uh, several others who have come through the system with the club. And even big clubs do that. They they bring up players through their youth level. But I think that's that's one of the important things about a club is just developing young players and being able to hold on to them and just kind of that whole playing for the badge idea. There was also something pretty cool that Wimbledon did. They compete in the well, I should say we, because again, I own a, I own a share of the Dons Trust. We compete most years in the London Senior Cup, which is mostly smaller non-league clubs, and we generally field a youth side in that so as not to just completely dominate with a League One side. But this year we played Ballum, a local South London club, and we actually reversed the fixture to play at Plough Lane at Ballum's request, just for monetary reasons, just to help them out. 
and Baum was very complimentary and played a good match. Actually, Wimbledon only ended up we only ended up winning two one at the very end. But I think that's important, supporting those smaller non-league clubs as well um, and helping raise them up. And that's what uh, soccer should be about. And stories like AFC Wimbledon is what soccer should be about, not the Super League. So for those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while, you've noted that in the movie segments I've been going through and watching the Star Trek The Next Generation films. I took a break from that by watching Garden State randomly. But I'm back on it, and this week I watched the fourth film, the fourth and final Star Trek The Next Generation film, Star Trek Nemesis. I was actually discouraged from doing so from uh, fellow Star Trek fans who said, yeah, you can skip that one. It was at an interesting point in my life it even came out because it was between my freshman and sophomore year of college when I wasn't really focused as much on sci-fi things. I was really a lot more focused on music and uh, a pretty mediocre White Sox team, you know, so it goes. I didn't even watch Enterprise at that point. That was the first Star Trek spinoff I didn't really watch. But anyway, I'm going to get to Nemesis itself now. So I think that a lot of the criticism of Star Trek Nemesis is deserved. I think of the four, it is decidedly the worst. However, I will say that there are some things in there that are interesting in and worth watching even if sometimes for the ridiculousness i think an interesting plot point in this one is that the remans figure so heavily and they were apparently mentioned in the original series but not in the star trek the next generation universe which i actually had to look up because i didn't remember them popping up in a tng episode Anyway, so that's an interesting start. You also have the wedding of Riker and Troy, which the series spent a lot of its run shipping. If back in back in that time period you'd had fan websites and people on social media, I'm sure you would see tons of memes about that. But yeah, not so much after 1994 uh, when the series ended. So basically, it starts out with Riker leaving his first officer. So it's sort of a going away party for Riker and Troy as well. Uh, you have Data singing at their wedding as a gift, which is interesting, I guess. Um, anyway, you just have some strange things that happen here. There's a scene where Picard jumps an ATV into a shuttle, which is kind of a lot. You have a nice Easter egg for Voyager fans because Admiral Janeway makes an appearance connecting between the spinoffs. And you have some interesting other side characters. You have Shinzon, who is leading a Riemann rebellion against the Romulans. He's played by Tom Hardy in only his third ever film role. His Viceroy, uh, First Officer, uh, Best Friend, whatever, is played by Ron Perlman. So again, you have some big actors from outside the Star Trek universe. Uh, so you have Tom Hardy doesn't exactly look like Picard's clone. They kind of write that off with saying, oh, yeah, I broke my nose and jaw. Um, and I think, again, you see a character in Shinzon who has a good idea, like a noble goal. He wants to liberate the Remans from the Dilithium mines, but is also a fanatic. And you kind of see how clearly that is when he starts using radiation to try and kill everybody. So, um, you know, I'm not going to go over all the plot points. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that 
Shinzon, okay, big spoiler alert, Shinzon is Picard's clone that the Romulans were trying to use, which is just a ridiculous plot point in and of itself. Let's just try to accept it for the sake of the film, though. But you had Data, a prototype version of Data named B4, and Picard and Shinzon. I think they do draw some interesting parallels there. Um, You know, and there's a lot of action there that I think is pretty good, but I think there's parts where they don't really know if they want Shinzon to be weak and dying or super strong for no reason. There's a lot of good setup to the events of Star Trek Picard. So that is one of the things that makes it worth watching. There's actually a Romulan officer who says, you've earned a friend in the Romulan Empire today. I hope the first of many, which again is a good setup for Picard. There is a toast that is a big feels kind of moment where a main character dies. I'm not going to get into that. If for some reason you want to watch Star Trek Nemesis from 18 years ago, 19 years ago now, um, feel free to do that without that spoiler. But it actually is a tear-jerking big feels moment, which uh, I didn't expect from this movie, knowing how it ended, but having not seen it for a long time. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a mess, but I think it's still worth taking another look at, even though it's the weakest of the four next generation films. So for music, I've been going back and revisiting a lot of music that I haven't listened to in a long time. And I actually pulled an audible on myself here, uh, threw myself a change up, whatever sports metaphor you want to use. And... I decided originally I was going to listen to F.A. Infinity by Godspeed You Black Emperor. And I just kind of started. I'm like, you know what? I'm not feeling this. I feel like Godspeed You Black Emperor has kind of aged in the sense that it feels like classical music for anarcho crust punks. <laughs> Maybe that's just who I knew who was listening to it at the time. But it, it's not that it's bad. It just, I don't know. I wasn't feeling it. So I decided to instead listen to the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat very different from that. Um, but I'm running out of time for my intro, so I am going to get into that when I talk about the album itself. So Beauty and the Beat by the Go-Go is basically a classic album, not just of New Wave, but just in general from the 80s. 1981, 40th anniversary of it's coming up. They were actually the first all-female band who wrote their own songs and played their own instruments to go to number one on the Billboard charts. So also Trailblazers, uh, Charlotte Caffey, and Jane Wideland, the guitarist, did most of the songwriting, which I'm going to get to why that's important in a minute. So it starts off on side A. Um, I couldn't actually listen to the vinyl because my record player is on the fritz, so I just listened on Spotify but I made sure to listen to everything in order and take into account what sides certain songs would be on. So it starts off with Our Lips Are Sealed, which is the biggest hit from the album. It kind of had more of a pop sheen than I remembered to it, but that's not a bad thing. Uh, it was still very catchy and memorable. It was actually co-written with Jane Wheedland and Terry Hall from the specials because they had a whirlwind romance together. How much more the next song Inside A is just fantastic in general. Um, nothing really wrong with it. How much more kind of has more of a rockabilly bit of spring to it uh, along with New Wave. It kind of sounds like something out of the Athens scene, which makes sense because they were signed to R IRS, which is R.E.M.'s label. The next three songs I kind of lumped together. Uh, Tonight, Lust to Love, In This Town. They just kind of have uh, memorable hooks to them. And they have this weird balance between menace and boast. So in tonight, 
We rule the streets tonight until morning comes is a lyric. Uh, Lust to love just kind of has that swagger to it. And this town has a refrain of this town is our town, almost a sequel to tonight. It kind of is a little more subtle with its rockabilly and surf influences. So it's a little bit of a trilogy to end side A. Side A, like I said, is great. Side B, uh, we got the beat. Another great pop song that stands the test of time. The rhythm section is really showing off here because it's about the beat again, which figures because it's We Got the Beat. So um, Cafe Valentine and bass and Gina Shock on drums are really kind of showing off there. And in pop culture terms, it's, yeah, again, stood the test of time. So then you've got Fading Fast and Automatic. Fading Fast is kind of this big AOR ballad attempt, which kind of falls flat to me. Uh, Fading Fast out of my memory, that's kind of a fitting lyric there. Automatic is a little more experimental, has a goth feel to it, but it just doesn't feel like it fits in here. Uh, the last few, though, you, you Can't Walk in Your Sleep If You Can't Sleep, Skid Marks on My Heart and Can't Stop the World are all kind of great sort of jangly new wave pop songs that kind of feel like they might fit in more on side A, given the first few tracks of, of side B. Uh, but you know, I think they, I think they age well, um, skid marks on my heart. Interestingly is Belinda Carlisle's only writing contribution, solid hook and a chorus. But I think the solo, the kind of surf rock type of solo in the middle of the song is really what stands out. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a great album that stands the test of time after 40 years. It still has a lot of memorable hooks to it and you can sing along with it. And it just makes you feel good. And I think that's why I ended up going with the Go-Go's over Godspeed. Godspeed just kind of is sort of trudging and just kind of felt like, okay, I, I just don't want to put in the energy to listen to this at the moment. No offense to them. And they're a band that I loved at one point, but I don't know. I just wasn't feeling it. Like I said, the Go-Go's I think is something, and especially this album, I think is something you can listen to anytime. And is something that kind of walked the walk in terms of women writing their own songs, playing their own instruments, and really making and leaving a mark. And that'll do it for Everything's 5 by 4 Thank you for listening. Again, if you want to get in touch with me to tell me that you liked the episode or hated the episode or just want me to do something differently, feel free to do that. My email address is everythings5x4 at gmail.com. That's everything's no apostrophe. 5x4 at gmail.com. And yeah, don't have a whole lot else to say this week. So again, thanks for listening and congratulations on getting through this episode. I'll probably be back at you next week. And again, feel free to contact me at everything's 5 by 4 at gmail.com. And as I always say, keep everything 5 by 4 Thank you. Bye.